This Parsha podcast is dedicated by my dear friend, Dr. Paul Block, in loving memory, and Le'ila Nishmas, his mother, Mrs. Mildred Block of blessed memory, Mindel Basrup Tzvi Hirsch, whose first yard site is on the 22nd day of Elul, which is this Friday, September 8th. May her soul be elevated in heaven. Two quick programming notes before we start. This week is Parshas Nitzavim and Vayelach, double Parsha. Next week is not Parshas Hazina because next Shabbos is Rosh Hashanah. And of course, when a festival coincides with a Shabbos, we don't read the next installment in our reading. Instead, we read something which relates to the festival. And therefore, Hazinu will wait until the following week, and there will not be a new Parsha podcast next week. That is programming note number one. Programming note number two is that we will have an extra segment after the question, after the IQ has been raised, we'll have a special segment with a very special guest. So don't leave early, even if you tend to do that on other weeks. This week we have a double Parsha, but it doesn't really make the reading longer. We have the shortest and the second shortest parshas in the Torah of the 54, 40 and 30 verses respectively. So even when you put them together, it's only 70 verses, which is shorter than average. The average is 108 verses. And we're following Moshe on the last day of his life. In fact, the rest of the Torah, Nitzavim, Vayelech, Azinu, Vezos HaBracha, the final four parshios in the Torah, are all happening on one day. It's the last day of Moshe's life, and he gathers the nation for one final parting message. And he tells them, Atem Nitzavim, you're standing before Hashem your God. And Rashi tells us that Moshe gathered the entire nation, everyone, on the day of his death for one final covenant to be forged between them and the Almighty. And he tells them, you're all here, and he lists all the different classes and cohorts of people, and you're here to accept a covenant with Hashem, your God. You commit to accept Him as your God, and you will be His nation. And this agreement is active, not just with you, but with future descendants. And if there's someone, a person, a man, a woman, a tribe, a family, then maybe they have some misgivings and they want to emulate the idolaters. Moshe tells them, you won't get away with it. And you will cause the nation to be exiled and the land to be destroyed in a way akin to Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, we know now with the hindsight of history that Moshe is foreshadowing, he's prophesying about the events that will actually happen in the future. And then chapter 30, we read about the reclamation. The nation, in their lowly state, in exile, will remember God and return to God, and then they will be recipients of blessing. And he will ingather them from amongst the exiles, and he will circumcise their hearts, and they will be recipients of divine prosperity, and all manner of goodness will be bestowed upon them. And God will curse their enemies and their haters. And this nation that maybe grew distant from God and reneged on parts of the covenant, the nation can repent and rebind itself to the Almighty. Today I want to focus on the final six verses of Parshas Nitzavim, so that's the first installment, where Moshe presents the nation with a choice. Behold, I have placed before you today life and good, and death, and evil. And then Moshe defines his terms. What does it mean, good? That that I command you today, to love Hashem your God, to go in His ways, to emulate God, to observe and guard and obey His mitzvos, His laws, His statutes. If you do that, you will live, and you will flourish, and you will be blessed in the land that Hashem your God brings you to inherit. That's one side of the equation. That's one option that you have before you. But if your heart goes astray, and you don't listen, and you deviate, 
and you follow other gods, and you worship other gods. You're choosing the other option. That's death. That's evil. And I'm telling you today, you will surely be destroyed. You will not endure on the land that you are now cross, crossing the Jordan to inherit. I summon today the heaven and the earth. That I'm telling you this. Everyone has to know this. The whole nation's there. Everyone's hearing these words. Life and death I have placed before you. Blessing and curse. And you should choose life, Moshe exhorts the nation, in order that you live, you and your descendants. And again, he reiterates, what does that mean? To love Hashem your God, to hearken to his voice, to cleave to him. That is your life. That is the length of your days. That will ensure that you'll endure on the land that Hashem promised to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. The Parsha ends, or at least the, the first installment, Parsha Nisavim ends with Moshe presenting the nation with a choice. He's telling them, on one side, you have life, you have goodness, you have blessing. On the other side, you have death, you have evil, you have cursing. Now, this is a theme really throughout the whole book. This is not the first time that Moshe did this. You recall earlier in the book of Devarim, Parshas Re'eh, chapter 11 of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moshe says a very similar thing. See, behold, I have placed before you today blessing and curse. And again, he delineates, he explicates what it means blessing and what it means curse. And it's a very similar thing that he says over here. And then he proceeds to talk about again this binary choice, the blessings administered on Mount Gerizim, the curses administered on Mount Ebal. That is a theme we've seen. It's a motif of the book. And now Moshe's upping the ante. It's not just a one-side blessing versus curses. It's life versus death. It's good. It's the ultimate good versus the ultimate evil. Moshe is creating a contrast. There's a choice. What do you want? Do you want blessing or do you want curse? Life or death? Good or bad? Mount Gerizim or Mount Ebal? We like, of course, to have optionality. Keep options open, play for both teams. And Moshe says, no, 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 you have to choose. And there's only two options. And again, he defines for us, what does it mean life? What does it mean goodness? What is this blessing that we're talking about? It's to love Hashem your God and to emulate God. In this world, we have choices. We could choose how we behave. And everything that we're taught about God can be instructive because if God behaves in a certain way, then goodness by definition, life, blessing by definition is that. And therefore, if we emulate God, we're choosing to cleave to God and to his choices and thus to life, to blessing and to goodness. The mitzvos, what are these mitzvos? What's the definition of mitzvos? A lot of people think, well, mitzvos, these are laws, these are a, a framework, stricta of, of living. Moshe's defining mitzvos for us. The definition of mitzvos is life. The laws are life, our goodness, our blessing. And they result in proliferation, in blessing, in flourishing. And there's death. And that's the repudiation of God. And that's if, God forbid, our heart veers away. And we don't hearken. We don't listen to God. And we go astray and we deviate. And we worship other gods. We abandon the Almighty and choose others. And that is a curse. And that is evil. And that's death. Moshe is telling the nation, you have a choice. And there's a conflict here. There's tension. There are two worlds, one of blessing, one of goodness, one of life. And the other one is death. It's a curse. It's evil. And you have to choose which one will you prioritize. Will you prioritize the good life, the eternal spiritual life, 
or the transient, ephemeral, passing, fleeting world. There are two paths. Which one will you choose? Your life. The objectives that you set for yourself in in life. They can be very different. Which agenda are you undertaking? Do you want this or do you want that? Do you want good or bad? Do you want life or death? Do you want blessing or curse? And if you read Moshe's choice narrative, if you will, to the nation, Moshe doesn't just tell us that we have a choice and what the choice is. After Moshe says there's a choice and there's life and there's goodness on one side, and there's death, and there's evil on the other side. And, and what's good, and what's evil? What's life, and what's death? After Moshe creates that contrast, the verse tells us, the Moshe tells us, to choose life. He summons the heaven and earth as witnesses. And he's telling them, he re- reiterates to them, I've placed before you life and death, blessing and curse. You should choose life. Moshe is urging the people to choose life so that you live, you and your descendants. And I think this raises an important question. Why is there a need to be told to choose life? Well, it's obvious, you know, if if the only options are on one side, life, on the other side is death, everyone would choose life. There's two doors. Which one are you going to choose? One says life, one says death. Which one will you choose? It's obvious. Why is there a need for an extra verse instructing us to choose life? Isn't that patently obvious? You have the red wire. You have the green wire. You have to snip one of them. And one of them confers life. And one of them confers death. Which one are you cutting it's obvious, no? Once we accept what Moshe is telling us, that there's a choice, and that place before you today, you have to make a choice. Why does he tell us to choose life? Why is there this extra, apparently, seemingly, ostensibly, extra verse? Now, beyond being an interesting question in the study of the Parsha, it's a very relevant subject for us. The dilemmas, the challenges, the conflicts, the choices that the people who were listening to Moshe's speech, that they had to make in their lives, them and their descendants, that mirrors what we have to choose in our life. We have the same choices. We have the same dilemmas. There's a midrash that we are fond of quoting, of two paths. There's a fork in the road. And one side appears to be very pleasant. It's beautiful. It's well paved. It's well landscaped. Well, it's good. But after the the street curves a little bit, then it gets full of thorns. It gets very messy. And it just continues and just gets worse and worse from there on. And then you have the other side, the other fork in the road the other direction and that appears to be very formidable it starts off and there's just thorns and it's difficult and it's hard to navigate but right a little further past the bend it gets very pleasant and the minister tells us that there was a person standing there at this crossroads at this fork in the road and he's trying to encourage people and tell them one of them looks such a such a nicer path it's so much more preferable but you should know that you choose that path you're in big trouble once you get past the horizon once you get past that curve and the other one looks really difficult initially once you overcome a little bit at the beginning at the inception of this path it's very pleasant and it continues getting even more pleasant as things progress and trying to encourage them to make that choice, to choose the more difficult or the one that seems to be more apparently difficult initially, but it's ultimately a better choice. Our life, effectively, is 
is at this crossroads. What determines a really uh, eternal standing is which path we choose. And Moshe, 3,500 years ago, he was telling the nation, and this is in the Torah for us to read. There are two paths, and one of them results in death. It's a path of a curse. It's a path of evil. And it may appear to be very exciting, and it looks pleasant initially. And then there's the other path, which is the path of blessing, of goodness, and of life, and it may seem very daunting. That same dilemma that the nation of yore and historically faced, we face today. And life really is about this fundamental choice. Which path are we taking? Which of our parts of our identity are we favoring? Are we favoring the body or the soul? What are we living for? Are we optimizing for having it easy initially but hard later on or vice versa? Are we optimizing to have a little difficulty ahead of time and delayed gratification and then having a more permanent, eternal pleasantness? One of the major themes of Rosh Hashanah, the festival that is swiftly upcoming, is the coronation of God. And in the prayers, there is a motif where we say, Melech Elyon, and we contrast that with Melech Evyon. We contrast the lofty king with the pathetic king. Each one of these paths is a choice to coronate a king over us. The path that leads to life, the path of goodness, of blessing, is when we coronate the Almighty and we emulate Him in every aspect of our lives. We love Him and we accept His rules and His mitzvot and His statutes. That is the act of coronation of God. The other path that seems to be so exciting and enticing and it draws you in that is the coronation of the faux god, of the pathetic god, of the Melech Evion, of the pitiful god. And that choice that Moshe presents the nation, that's the same choice that we must make in our lives. And Moshe defines one of the choices as good, as life, as blessing, and the other as bad, as death, as a curse. And then he summons heaven and earth to serve as witnesses. And he instructs us, choose life. And the question we're trying to ask is, why is this necessary? It seems extraneous. It seems superfluous. Once we accept Moshe's definition of the choice, it's obvious which option we will choose. Why is there a need to be sorted to choose life. And I think that maybe the answers that we suggest for this question, it will help us shed light on the human condition and hopefully give us an insight to have a more productive Rosh Hashanah, which is upcoming. This notion of having a choice, of being at a crossroads, of being at a fork in the road, and having options before us. And one of them being an option of life, and one of death. And we still have a choice. That is uniquely human. Angels cannot, they're not capable of choosing anything but life. Whatever life means to them. Animals, similarly, Again, whatever life means to them, they cannot choose the opposite of that. It's only us. It's humanity and humanity alone. We can know what's life. We can know that one path is life and it's good and it's blessing and still make a different choice. This is an astonishing discovery and quite a frightening one. We have to be told what to choose. Because it's possible, even if we know the nature of the choice, for us to choose otherwise. There's goodness. There's blessing. 
There's life. Those terms really encapsulate everything that we want. And knowing that, it's possible still for someone to choose otherwise. It's not enough to be told, this is the reality of this choice. Go make it on your own. We have to be told to choose life. It's an unbelievable thing. It's a terrifying thing of what what a human even means. And there's another element over here. The Torah instructs us to choose life. It doesn't say, well, either one's okay. You have a choice and you must, you are obligated to make the better one, to choose life, to choose blessing, to to choose eternity, to choose goodness. We may have a tendency to say, you know what? Moshe, it's great. The life, blessing, and goodness, this whole eternity thing you're talking about, and yeah, I'm sure you're right, around the bend it gets much more pleasant the other path. It sounds wonderful. But I want to forgo it. I want to forfeit it. I want the path that starts off pleasant. Okay, it gets rough afterwards. I'll deal with it then. My life. My choice. That is no longer tenable. It's obligatory to choose life. It's not only a a good idea. It's not only the rational choice. It's obligatory. We are obligated to choose life. We're obligated to choose goodness. This life that the humanity wants for us. The life of mimicking, emulating God, embracing God, cleaving to Him. The life that results in what Ramchal calls, calls the greatest pleasure and the greatest delight. The highest Zenith, the apotheosis of the human possibility to have an association with the divine, to have a touch point with eternity. That greatness, it's not optional. We must experience absolute unending delight. It's mandatory. The Almighty created us. Why? Why did God create us? That's a deep question. And as he does tell us that he created us to serve as a receptacle of divine goodness. God is good. Good wants to give. Good wants to give good perfectly. And therefore God created a thing, an entity that can serve as a receptacle of divine goodness. And we have no choice. We cannot opt out. We cannot forego this path, this pleasure. We can't say, you know what? I'm going to subsist with the small pleasures. We have to have the highest level. We must choose the delightful path. Mediocrity. That's another word, perhaps, for evil, for curse, for death. You have a soul within you and you're going to be mediocre? It's not only foolish. Moshe is telling us that such a choice contravenes the will of God. It's a violation of the will of the Almighty. Moshe lays out the nature of the choice. And then he tells us, you must choose good. You must choose life. And I think... There's another element, and we kind of hinted at this earlier. The other path, the path that results in death, the path of mediocrity, the path that it's a curse, that's evil, in the words of Moshe. It's initially pleasant, and therefore it is seductive. This pitiful king that we're trying to unshackle ourselves from on Rosh Hashanah. There's something about him that's very desirable, at least initially. It seems initially to be a preferable path. And Moshe reveals that this is a path that leads to death. 
but that's not enough. In order for us to have the strength, the fortitude to overcome our initial draw, our initial attraction to that path, we have to know that we are obligated to choose life. Moshe tells us this is death. And we're like, uh, actually, it looks like it's kind of awesome. <laughs> it looks much more fun than what you're proposing, Moshe, to love God and to follow his ways and to follow mitzvahs. That doesn't sound like fun at all. That's what we're going up against here. Because by default, the way we see the world is that while Moshe is telling us his life and blessing and goodness It looks like a slot. It looks cumbersome. It looks difficult. Those thorns are quite spiky. And the other path is really exciting. And it really tantalizes us. It's not enough for us to be told by the greatest prophet of all of what these paths are actually about. It has to be mandatory. That's the only way that we can overcome the Yitzhahara. I think this is a very profound insight. But I don't want to stop here. If this is going to be the last parsha of Akis before Rosh Hashanah, we have to go a little further. And I want to share maybe another angle to this question. You should choose life. You must choose life. You must choose life. What does it mean to choose? And what does it mean life? My grandfather, blessed memory, used to quote the Rabbeinu Yonah, who says something very surprising. He says that there is a mitzvah to choose. Bechira, which means to choose. It's a mitzvah, and it's a lofty level to make a choice. Choice, he's telling us, is something that we don't necessarily do. It's something we have to earn. And this, this very much violates our understanding of free will. You know, we, we assume that, well, man has a choice. Man, when I say man, we mean mankind, humanity. The default state of humanity is that we, we are thrust into situations where we need to make choices. And some make good choices, some make poor choices, but we're always making choices. Humans, we have free will, and therefore by default, we are Choosers. Rabbein Yonah says otherwise. Making choices, it's quite a lofty state. And it's actually one of the 613 mitzvahs is to choose. And that's a, a powerful insight. We're talking about these two paths and Moshe's laying it out and he's revisiting this idea multiple times throughout the book, that there are different paths, and look, I'm, I'm in places before them, and there's life on one side, and there's death on the other side, and there's blessing on one side, and there's curse on the other side. There is goodness and evil. And you have to make a choice. And we understand that this is a choice that we need to make as well. But how many people are actually making a decision which of these paths to choose? How many people actually consider what Moshe is saying and examine where's the blessing, where's the goodness, where's the life on one side of the equation? And what's this curse, this evil, this death that Moshe is referring to on the other? How many people are proactively making a choice to choose one of the two paths? I would venture to say that an overwhelming majority of people don't ever choose. Of course, they have to live, but it's never, or it's frequently not, it's rarely a result of a decision. People veer. People try to straddle both sides. They nibble a bit over here, and they maybe they, they turn around and go back to the other side and check that out a little bit. And they have these moments, these flashes, these spates of life and, and, and blessing and, and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And they're periodically here and periodically there. And they kind of slosh around 
and of course their family background and their education and their community and their circumstances influence this a lot. But how many people are actually choosing? How many people are considering the options and making a decision? To do that, you really have to work hard. You have to have a certain presence of mind, a a clearness of mind, and actually evaluate the claim, the options, and make a decision of which path you want. Most people never do that exercise. To do it, it's kind of hard. You have to be very mindful, to be aware, to be kind of a thought-out person. And that's vanishingly rare. So the first thing which is telling us, not only do you have a choice, you have to choose. You have to make a a decision. And yes, you should choose life. We'll get to that part of Moshe's instruction. But don't just default to life. Don't just say, well, I'll just do what everyone else does. I'll I'll go with the flow. I'll follow what everyone else does. I'll taste a little bit here and taste a little bit there and hopefully taste more good than bad. Choose. Make a decision. And of course, I would venture to say that this is true even on a more granular level. How much of our daily life is the product of a choice versus how much is, you know, what we are inclined to do, what our habits, what our routine, whatever is on the schedule, whatever, you know, happenstance causes us to do one thing or another. Is it crazy to say that actually deploying our free will, making an active choice, is it fair to say that it's actually something which is quite foreign to us? That's a terrifying notion, but maybe that's what Moshe is saying. You have to choose. It's not just enough to be aware of that. And to have these two possibilities before you, you have to actually make a choice. And what happens when you choose life? Moshe says, choose and choose life. My grandfather, a blessed memory, used to say that the Torah has a very different definition of life than we typically do. Perhaps you recall what happened in chapter, I think it's 46 or 47, maybe. I don't remember exactly where it is. Should have looked it up before the podcast. Okay. In Genesis, when Jacob, upon discovery of the fact that Joseph is still alive, he goes to visit him. And the verse tells us that he met Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob gives a quite convoluted answer. He says that the the days of the years of my sojourns are 130. But the days of the years of my life are much fewer and worse than the days of the years of my life, of, of the lives of my antecedents. And amongst their years of their sojourns, they had a higher proportion of years of life than I do. It's a very long answer to a simple question. How old are you? I'm 130. That's not what Jacob says. He differentiates between years of life and years of sojourn, of existing, of subsisting, of breathing of being around and appearing to be alive. The verse says, you should choose life. The Torah's definition of life is much more proactive than just, oh, your heart is beating and there are signals in your brain and you're eating and then you're digesting and uh, you are embracing the oxygen incorporating that into your lungs, spreading that throughout your body and having all your systems work and the circulatory system and the nervous system and brain activity and uh, you have to sleep at night. That's not life. What does it mean life? It's a totally different level. It's when you realize 
that you're here for something. You're here on a path. There's a path. And you're choosing one of the paths, a path of life. And that's a path which is initially difficult because you're defeating the Eight Sahara. And it's a path of emulating God, of loving God, of having this touch point with God for eternity. It's an understanding that, well, if God created you, He wants you for something. You're not here to just exist. You're here to do something, to accomplish something. You're like an angel. You have to figure out what that mission is. To live life as such, where you're very proactive about what that actually means. That's life. That's not just breathing. That's a much more purposeful life. And Jacob, in his humility, is saying, well, actually, most of my life, it's just been, you know, just existing. And very few, as a percentage uh, uh, of the years of existing, very, very little was actually living. That's Jacob's humility. The truth is, he lived life to the maximum. But this is what the Torah is telling us. There's a choice. Choose. The first thing, choose. Make a choice. Don't just follow whatever direction life takes you. Make a choice. And the choice should be life. Live. Don't just exist. And of course, this is a very fitting message to read before Rosh Hashanah. It's not a coincidence. The whole passage is all about repentance and about the consequences of our behavior and about making good choices. This is the exercises of the festival. It's the time to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? Have we made a choice? Have we chosen a path? Are we happy with the path that we chose? Have we even thought about it? We're not going to be around here for that much longer. But our choices, and certainly our, our choice to choose or to just ignore this whole subject, that will reverberate for eternity. Moshe is speaking to the nation, and he's also speaking to us. There are two paths. One is a path of blessing, of goodness, of life, and one that is much worse. And we have a proclivity. We have a weakness to be drawn to the bad one. And Moshe tells us, no, no, don't do that. Choose life. Even if you know that you have you have to choose, it's obligatory. Goodness, blessing, life, it's obligatory. And we have to make a choice. And that choice is a choice for life, a much more meaningful and purposeful life. And uh, the hope is that on this Rosh Hashanah, where we ask God, remember us for life. God who is desirous of life. Inscribe us in the book of life. It's not just talking about the book of breathing, the book of brain activity. It's the book of real life. And if we take a choice towards the right path, the path that may be a bit daunting initially, but we take a choice, we have the, the courage to make that choice and to embark upon that perilous, or at least initially perilous journey, the Almighty will remember us for life and inscribe us in the Book of Life. Okay, let's get to the question that we like to end the Parsha podcast with. Here's the question. Our Parsha, both halves of them, are talking about the day of death of Moshe. Moshe tells the nation, I'm 120 years old today. Rashi tells us this is his birthday. It's exactly 120 years. And the Midrash tells us that he had a very busy day. It's not just four parshios in the Torah. The Midrash tells us that once Moshe knew that he is destined to die in this day, he wrote 13 Torah scrolls. And he gave 12 to the tribes, one to each tribe. And one of them he placed in the ark. And that way, there are at least 13 perfectly accurate Torah scrolls, one for every tribe. And if there's ever a doubt of what the correct text is, you open up the ark and you discover the actual handwritten Torah of Moshe. 
Now, of course, to write a Torah scroll usually takes about a year for an average speed scribe. How did Moshe write it so fast? We don't know the answer to that. It might have to do with the fact that, well, we don't understand how he went up to heaven and didn't eat, drink, or sleep for 40 days and 40 nights. So maybe Moshe has some supernatural abilities. But he did it. And here's the question. What day of the week did Moshe die on? The Torah does not mention what day of the week it was, but the Talmud does. The Talmud says that he died on Shabbos. And the sources break it down and tell us that he died actually towards the late afternoon, towards Mincha time. And that's why there's a special prayer that we say on Shabbos by Mincha, your righteousness is just forever because we're justifying God's deeds. God takes away Moshe's soul. Moshe, <laughs> if there's anyone who deserves to not die, it will be Moshe. We're justifying God. We are saying that his decision was just. And that's why every single Shabbos, not every single Shabbos, but most Shabbos afternoons by Mincha, we say this extra prayer. Well, if Moshe died on Shabbos, one of the prohibited activities on Shabbos is writing. If someone writes, God forbid, on Shabbos, you write two letters. That is an executable offense in Torah law. Our Torah scrolls have 304,805 letters. The Torah scrolls that Moshe wrote presumably would have the same amount of letters. And the reason why I say presumably it's not because I'm a cynic, God forbid, but because there's an opinion of the Talmud that says that Moshe did not write the entirety of the Torah. The final eight verses were written by Joshua. So there's a dispute. Who wrote the final eight verses? But even if you just discount the final eight verses, and even if you just round it out to the nearest 100,000, we're talking about 300,000 letters. Times 13 Torah scrolls, it's almost 4 million letters. And we're told Moshe wrote 13 Torah scrolls on the last day of his life. And if that's a Shabbos, that would be millions of Shabbos violations. And again, it's an executable offense in Torah law for each two letters. How can it be? How can it be that Moshe, the great Moshe, violated the... Can't be. Can't be. This question, it's a fun question. It's asked by some of the earliest commentators. And there are some lofty answers. And some suggest, well, this is proof that he did not die on Shabbos. And maybe the reason why we say the special prayer to justify God, it's not for the death of Moshe, but it is for the wicked returning to Gehenom, those who are wicked and are suffering in Gehenom. On Shabbos, they are off the hook. And towards the end of Shabbos, they go back to purgatory and we're justifying God, so to speak. There are other answers. Maybe he died on Friday, but he was buried by God on Shabbos by Mincha time. And that's why we justify God's judgment then. Others suggest maybe it was a prolonged death. It started on Friday. It finished on Shabbos. We know there is a very elaborate description of the death of Moshe in the Midrash. So it may have been more protracted. There's a Kabbalistic answer, and that is this, this event to be very interesting. The soul, of course, departs from the body at death, but it sticks around. It hovers around for another day. Maybe to see if it could go back. Maybe it's uncertain where to go. And therefore, Moshe died on Friday, but his soul didn't really leave until Shabbos. Or perhaps Moshe did in fact die on Shabbos. But he didn't write like we write. He wrote in the same way that he killed the Egyptian who was striking the Hebrew man 
in the beginning of his narrative, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moshe spoke and struck down the Egyptian. Rashi tells us he killed him with the name of God. And that's how he wrote these Torah scrolls. And the prohibition to write on Shabbos is only if you write in a conventional way. But if you know, if you know, this is what the sages say, if you know how to write using the name of God, that would be permissible on Shabbos. Regardless, it's an interesting question. If Moshe died on Shabbos, how did he write 13 Torah scrolls on the day of his death? A fascinating question. And uh, before we sign off, I have a very uh, special segment with a very special person. What is your name, young lady? Miriam Wolby. I am here with Miriam Wolby, my my daughter. And she celebrated her bat mitzvah, or as we like to say, bas mitzvah, uh, this week, even though her, even though her uh, actual birthday was in the summer. But because we were out of town in the summer, she had a celebration here in the Torch Center with her friends this week. And during this birthday party slash celebration of the bat mitzvah, uh, there was a mitzvah that they did together. All the girls made a dough. And when you make a dough, you remove a piece of the dough and you're supposed to give it to the Kohen, ideally. And that's the mitzvah of challah. And of course, if you're going to start a life, embark on a life of, of mitzvahs, what a better way, there's no better way to do it than to actually do a mitzvah. So that's what they did. And uh, Miriam had a, a short speech that she gave about this mitzvah. And I'm inviting her here now on the podcast to share with the wonderful Parsha podcast audience what she said about the mitzvah of challah. You ready to start, Mir? Yeah. Okay. This is the mitzvah of challah, where we are commanded to take a portion of the dough and give it to the Kohen. Today, because we don't have a base of mikdash, we don't give it to the Kohen. Instead, we dispose of it. This is a very fitting mitzvah to do at a Bas mitzvah celebration. When we study it, we discover that the mitzvah of challah is a very special one. The midrash observes that the Torah begins with the word barashis, in the beginning. That same word, rashis, is used by the Torah when describing the mitzvah of challah. The Pasuk says, Rishis ari sochechem challah. The rishis of your dough is challah. The very same word that starts the Torah is used to describe the mitzvah of challah. The Midrash tells us that this is not a coincidence. The reason why the Torah was uses the same word to describe challah as it does to describe the beginning of the word it's because Chala is, is the reason why the world was created. Why did Hashem cre- create the world? Why did Hashem do Barashis? The answer to Barashis of creation is Rashis of Chala. The reason why Hashem created the world is because of the Mitzvah of Chala. This tells us that the Mitzvah of Chala is much more than a nice gift that we give to the Kohen. Chala has a very deep meaning and power to it that relates to why Hashem created the world. What is the secret of Chala? The Maharal says something fascinating. He says that Chala is a mitzvah done from a mixture. Before you have dough, you cannot fulfill this mitzvah. Only after you mix the flour and water together and create a dough, only then can you separate the Chala. Chala is a mitzvah done from mixtures. If you only have flour, you cannot separate Chala. If you only have water, you cannot separate Chala. Only from dough, from a new thing that is mixture of flour and water, can you separate the challah. Challah symbolizes the ability to fulfill the will of Hashem from mixtures. The mixture of different things is a hallmark of this world. In our world, we have good and bad. The human is a mix. We have a body that draws us away from Hashem and a shema that draws us closer to Him. We can accept Shem as our king, or Chas V'Shalom, we can reject him. We can make good choices, or Chas V'Shalom, the opposite. We can run after mitzvos, or Chas V'Shalom, the opposite. We can dedicate our lives for good, or Chas V'Shalom, the opposite. Chala symbolizes mitzvos and mixtures. Hashem created us like this, and the purpose of the world is to do mitzvos despite our mixture, even though we sometimes want to do other things. So to answer the earlier question, why did Hashem create the world? What does He want us to do in this world? 
We look at the challah and discover the answer. Hashem wants us to overcome our challenges, to overcome our bad midos, to overcome our yitzar hara, to be able to become a tzaddik despite the difficulties. We have a yitzar hara, and that was given to us by Hashem. Why did Hashem give us challenges? Because He wants us to overcome them. Hashem has plenty of other creatures who are not mixtures and do His will with ease. They are called malachim. They don't have any confusion. They don't have difficulties. They don't have any challenges. But Hashem did not create the world for malachim. Hashem wants us. He wants us who are a mixture to be able to overcome our challenges and make a kiddush Hashem in this world. Barashas. Hashem created the world. Why? Not for malachim. For us. For us to fulfill mitzvahs. For us who are like a dough to dedicate ourselves to Hashem. This is perhaps no more appropriate mitzvah to do at a Bas Mitzvah celebration than Chah. I have the great pri- privilege of becoming obligated in mitzvahs. Some people think that mitzvahs are a burden. Some people may think that we are unlucky that as Jews we are obligated in 613 mitzvahs. The mitzvah of Chalah shows us otherwise. Chala shows us that mitzvos are the entire reason why the world was created. Sometimes they are difficult, but that is by design. That is what Hashem wants. And when we do a mitzvah, we are fulfilling Hashem's reason for creating the world. How lucky are we to have that opportunity? How fortunate are we to be able to be the reason for the world to exist? But the truth goes further. Mitzvos really are like Chala. It might take some work to do, but in the end, it tastes delicious. Thank you so much, Miriam, for sharing that wonderful thought with the Parsha Podcast family. Uh, it was a delight to celebrate your bas mitzvah together with uh, our family here, but now we're celebrating with the family on uh, the distributed family on the Parsha Podcast. Uh, it was, was really delightful. And thank you for coming on the podcast. And I want to wish everyone, of uh, course, a wonderful rest of their day and a splendid rest of the week, and an uplifting Shabbos, and please God, a productive and uh, meaningful Rosh Hashanah upcoming. Everyone should be inscribed, written in the Book of Life, and sealed in the Book of Life. We should all have an incredible, incredible coronation ceremony of God. When we hear the shofar, our, our, our hearts should be awakened, and we should feel like we're coronating the King, and we should have the repentance that we need to do on Rosh Hashanah, and it should be a sweet year for all of us, for all of the listeners of the Parsha Podcast, for their families, for all of our brethren, for the whole world. It should be a wonderful year. Shana Tova Umetukan. Of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. <laughs>